Good morning, y'all. As Jeremy mentioned last week, he is over on the East Coast with Rachel and the kids and their family. So I'm going to be filling in this week, and then next week is going to be David Woodard. Um, so as we get started this morning, uh, please pray with me that God will be here with us uh, during this time. Father, thank you that uh, we're able to gather, even together during these strange times, Lord. Um, even though we're apart, Father, um, you are bringing us together, Lord, uh, during this time of worship, um, during these times of uh, hearing your words, Father. And I do pray that this morning that the words I speak will be your message and not my message, Lord. Uh, please, Father, uh, use me, Father, and open all of our ears, including mine, to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. Thank you for the blessing of getting to worship you and to hear your word, Father. We know that apart from Jesus, Lord, uh, this is not a right that we have. Um, thank you for granting this to us through Christ. Please be with us this morning as we continue to worship. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning, we're going to be continuing in the same series that Jeremy started last week, um, which is going through the book of Acts and talking about what it means to be, to be willing to give your life uh, for Jesus Christ. And so as we get started and open up, I'd like us to read through the verses in Mark 8 that we read last week. First, starting with verse 34, um, just because there's a level of seriousness and zeal that Jesus calls us to um, in these verses that I think are a good way to help prepare our hearts for what we're going to be hearing uh, and thinking through this morning. So let's start with Mark verse, or chapter 8, verse 34, and we'll read through verse 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, this is Jesus, said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed." when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So last week we talked about Stephen uh, and Stephen's stoning uh, and his death and how it's the, really the first recorded instance of a Christian uh, being willing to die for his faith in Jesus Christ. And not, not just dying, but being willing to die. Uh, Stephen willingly laid down his life. It wasn't something, as we read about last week, that he fought against or tried to escape from. Uh, or tried to argue from, uh, he just willingly laid down his life because of his faith in Christ. Um, and as we talked about, or as we read last week in Acts 7, uh, there was a man named Saul, or Paul, uh, present for Stephen's stoning. And not just present, but really involved in the death of Stephen. And that's kind of going to be where we focus this morning, uh, is on that man, Paul. And Paul later in Acts um, describes his own participation in the murder of Stephen and sort of explains what his involvement was there. Um, so as we get started, let's, let's start reading through kind of Paul's state of mind uh, at that time uh, during Stephen's stoning. So let's go to Acts 22, and we're just going to read verse 20. And this is Paul sort of praying to God in this moment, and he says, When the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And moving forward just a little bit to get a little more of Paul's state of mind, 
uh, Acts 22, verse 4 through 5, Paul says, and he's speaking generally about this time in his life, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. So that's kind of Paul's state of mind uh, during the time that we were kind of reading about last week, which is the stoning of Stephen uh, and that kind of time in history. That's kind of how Paul was thinking about it, was uh, seeking out Christians, persecuting the, the way, which is Christianity, to the death. So sort of keeping in mind that that's kind of how Paul was thinking, that's how he himself, as we just read, was describing his own state of mind. Let's move ahead a number of years and listen to how Paul's state of mind has changed uh, years later. So to do that, let's go to Acts 20, verse 22, and we'll read through verse 25. And here, at this point, years later, Paul says this, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course, my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So I'd wager that most of us are at least somewhat familiar with Paul's transition uh, from someone who was a uh, zealous persecutor of the church, uh, seeking out the execution of Christians, making sure that people's garments weren't stolen while they were literally throwing rocks. Paul went from someone that was that way, uh, just that intent on dismantling Christianity, to someone who in these verses, as we're reading, uh, what did he say, doesn't account his life of any value, nor as precious to himself, if only he can finish the course in the ministry given to him by the Lord Jesus. Uh, that is a pretty massive state of mind shift. Someone who was willing to kill someone for something that they believe in and then moving to a place in their life where they're willing to die for it. They're willing to die to be able to tell others about what they believe. And as Paul went through this transition, it's not like he didn't know what he was getting into. He had a corner on the market when it came to persecuting and arresting and killing Christians because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That was his life. That was what he had devoted his life to. Uh, and he was very, uh, he had a very good understanding of what it meant to persecute uh, and murder Christians. He had seen it happen firsthand. And now, as we're reading in Acts a second ago, he is now willing to lay down his life for Jesus. So how did he get there? How did he go from feeling so strongly that Christianity needed to be wiped off the face of the earth to being someone who was willing to go to the ends of the earth uh, to spread Christianity? That sort of state of mind change, that transition, uh, how you go from that place to the next place uh, is kind of going to be what we're focusing on this morning and what that means as it relates to being willing and able to endure persecution. As most of us probably know, uh, in the middle of Paul's persecuting of the Christian church, Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And at that point in Paul's life, he was as far as you could get from being a Christian. He hated Christians. Um, and so let's read Paul's description of what happened to him uh, in that moment on the road to Damascus. This is Acts 26, verse 12. And this, Paul's like testifying uh, to a Jewish king in these moments. Um, and he's basically giving his testimony uh, of, of how Jesus changed his life. So Paul says, uh, Acts 26, 12, At midday, O king, 
I saw a light, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Jesus gave Paul uh, in these moments three things that I think are worth stopping and talking about uh, and considering as to how they can relate to us. So firstly, Paul was given by Jesus the truth. Paul thought that the world worked one way. He, he had his entire life centered around the fact that he believed the world worked one way. And in an instant, the truth that he'd been blind to was revealed to him. And he realized that he was completely and utterly wrong uh, about the way he thought things worked. Uh, and what's interesting to me is there's no description in any of Paul's uh, accounts of what happened to him of him stopping and sort of debating with Jesus, like, hey, how is this, how is this possible? How, are you really the Messiah? Uh, there's no description of him asking for more details uh, or for him help, like, help me understand how this is possible. Uh, he just simply says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus. Paul recognized in that moment by saying, Lord, he recognized a majesty and a power uh, that he was seeing in front of him that he basically could not resist. It was irresistible. And in a moment, Paul was completely changed. There's no description anywhere in the Bible of him uh, sort of asking for further, like there was no debate or sort of uh, clarification that he needed. It just happened to him, and his entire life was changed by experiencing Jesus. And the second thing Paul was given uh, in these moments by Jesus was a task. Jesus told Paul, I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So Paul's task was not only to tell people about what was happening to him in that moment and what had happened in the past, but also to tell people about the things that were going to be happening to him in the future. Uh, things that Jesus told him, things that haven't even happened to you yet, but will happen to you in the future. You are to be a witness about these things. And Paul had been given a truth that he now would be able to use to interpret all the things that were going to happen to him in the future. It was a lens in which he could filter everything that was going to happen to him for the rest of his life through it and be a witness to people about it. And that truth that Jesus Christ is Lord does completely change the way not only that you view the world, but the way that you talk to people about how you view the world. And the third thing Paul was given, uh, if he was given the truth, given a task, um, he was also given a reason for the task. Jesus told him explicitly that it was so that people could receive the forgiveness of sins and be sanctified by their faith in God. Paul's task was to be a witness so that people could receive grace, the grace and mercy uh, that God had available to them. That's why Paul was being given this truth, was to be a witness so people could be forgiven of their sins. And those three things that Paul was given, we've been given as well. Uh, Paul didn't receive like a different message or really even a unique version of the same message. Um, we've been given the exact same set of truths, the exact same message. We know the truth about Jesus, uh, just as Paul did. 
In fact, in Matthew 28, uh, verse 19, Jesus tells us, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Jesus gives us the same task uh, that he gave Paul. And for Paul, this task, think about how catastrophically life-changing this must have been, this experience must have been. The group that he had been persecuting, their dead leader appeared to Paul. And in a moment, in the blink of an eye, his power and his authority was revealed to Paul in a way that Paul could not resist. He couldn't question it. He couldn't argue against it. He immediately understood what was going down. <laughs> and that type of revealing of the truth, uh, that type of conversion, which is one that happens really quickly, um, certainly happens to people like that today. It seems more often that it happens on a longer timeline. But either way, we go from one set of desires, a set of worldly desires, to having another completely different, completely new set of desires. And for those of us who can remember a uh, time before you believed, which I can remember a time before I believed, um, think about the things you prioritized in your life then versus the things you prioritize now, now that you know the truth about who Jesus is, about who God is. Uh, think about the way you viewed the world then versus the way you view the world now. There's a prominent Christian theologian named Ravi Zacharias, some of y'all may have heard of him, um, who actually just recently uh, went on to heaven. And Ravi said that God doesn't just change what we do, he changes what we want to do. And for Paul, that's exactly what happened. The new dominating idea in Paul's mind was that of the complete, the complete and utter lordship of Jesus Christ over not just his life, but all of existence. And that truth leads to a set of truths, uh, not just the truth that there's a creator God uh, by whose hand all things were created and are sustained. There is that truth, but there's also the truth that I feel like in that moment changed Paul's world, which was that Paul saw two things that are not allowed to coexist. Paul saw a man who had been dead, buried, not passed out or unconscious, literally beaten to death, suffocated on a tree and put into a tomb, Paul saw that man alive after he had been dead. And Jesus being raised from the dead isn't a metaphor or a folktale that's meant to like inspire us and give us some sort of simile about you know, life after death. A man literally died and then stopped being dead. He became alive again. And that's a fact that the world today uh, just flatly rejects the idea that a man could be dead and then alive again. But for those of us who understand it and believe it, it changes everything. It changes everything. In Mark 8, uh, as we read earlier, Jesus told us that if we're ashamed of him and Jesus being dead and coming back to life, that's him. Jesus told us that if we're ashamed of him in this adulterous and sinful generation, then he'll be ashamed of us. God is fully aware of the cost of believing something that much of the rest of the world says is impossible. Uh, not only is God aware, it's a cost that we're expected to pay. Not a cost we're expected to avoid or dodge or get around if possible. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, and this is Paul writing, says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
And to put even more fine a point on it, Jesus said about Paul believing in Acts 9, Jesus said about Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Which is an intense statement to hear Jesus saying about someone. But Jesus knew exactly what the rest of Paul's life was going to look like now that the truth of who Jesus was had been revealed to Paul. Paul, who had been hunting down Christians, would spend the rest of his life navigating attempts to murder him, being directly subjected to those attempts, failing to navigate it, and having stones thrown at him. He would, be t- he would spend his life testifying in courts to determine whether or not he'd actually be sent to prison. And in fact, he did spend uh, what seems like a lengthy amount of time under arrest. But what Jesus said in Acts 9, that he would show Paul how much he must suffer for Jesus' name, it tells us that none of these things that were happening to Paul were things that Jesus would have preferred that Paul avoid. Jesus' preference wasn't that Paul escape persecution. That wasn't Jesus' desire for Paul, that he, he avoid this persecution. He told him specifically, he will show him how much he must suffer for Jesus' name. And the Greek word he used there uh, in that sentence, day, means is necessary or must. It doesn't mean maybe or possibly. It, it is a very definitive word, meaning this is the way that it must happen. Paul's suffering was the exact means by which God's goals would be accomplished. And as we read in 2 Timothy a minute ago, what happened to Paul as a result of him believing should also be expected to happen to us if we're speaking truth, as Timothy said, and living a godly life in Christ Jesus. So what are some examples of this, uh, of the type of reactions that a Christian should expect uh, when he speaks the truth? And to answer that, let's go to Acts 14, verse 11. Um, And this part of Acts is covering Paul's first missionary journey with his friend Barnabas. And at this time, they're preaching the gospel in an area called Lystra. And we're going to start in verse 11, chapter 14, which picks up right after Paul healed a man uh, who had been unable to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So what's happening here is that Paul performed a miracle and healed a man in front of a crowd. And as much as we'd like to imagine that if something that miraculous happened, certainly I would like to imagine if something that miraculous happened in front of people who weren't believers that they would believe. But actually the opposite happened in this case. The witnesses who saw it did not believe the gospel that Paul was preaching. And up ahead in verse 7, if you look up, it says that Paul was preaching the gospel uh, in, in Lystra. It doesn't, it's not like he was going around and sort of healing people silently and leaving the crowds to kind of figure it out. It said he was preaching the gospel. And the first reaction that people had uh, upon hearing the gospel preached and seeing uh, these things that these Christians were doing was to try to figure out how to slot this into their own pre-existing beliefs. The way that they already live their lives, the way that they like doing things. We hear what you're saying, but we want to, let's figure out how to fit this into the beliefs we already have. So they called Paul Hermes, uh, and they called Barnabas Zeus. And there's sort of two sides to this coin. Uh, There's the side that is hearing something and wanting to rightly and justly make sure that it's the truth, uh, to test it, 
uh, and ensure that it really is the truth rather than just blindly accepting it. And it's not a bad thing to do this. Uh, and in this case with Paul and Barnabas, you had them preaching the gospel uh, and performing miracles to go along with it. And they were making it clear, you know, what they were saying. And for these people, they were hearing what they needed to hear to understand the gospel that was being preached to them. And they were seeing miracles happening in front of them. So they were definitely being given what they needed to be given to be able to believe. And uh, let's keep reading, actually, Acts 14, verse uh, 14. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, referring to the people declaring that they were gods, when they heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So the other half of the coin is a stubborn and maybe arrogant desire to hold fast to your own beliefs and maybe to integrate something here and there, but only as long as you can warp it and twist it enough to make it fit into your own point of view, the way that you like to live your life. And a modern example of this is that for thousands of years, uh, there's been no serious debate amongst scholars about what Romans 1 meant when it said that it was sinful for men to abandon their natural relations with women and lust after one another. For thousands of years, there was no real discussion or debate about what the Bible meant when it said that. And then suddenly about 40, 50 years ago, that verse and the other verses like it were not only called into question, but just straight up pronounced by some scholars to mean something totally different than they had always meant. And that new interpretation just happened to line up with what culture uh, was teaching at the time. Hadn't been teaching for thousands of years, but suddenly culture was teaching this, and actually these verses now maybe mean something different. That's sort of the way that this kind of happens when you look at culture wanting to take something and twist it and fit it into what the culture believes at that time. And Christians can definitely be guilty of this as well. We will look at the Bible and we'll take things that maybe are hard or difficult and want to make them fit with what we already believe, what we kind of already feel is right based on our, our pre-existing beliefs. And what we already believe didn't come from nowhere. Uh, it wasn't something that we just sort of created on our own out of nothing. What we already believe came from what our parents taught us or maybe what we learned in school, uh, certainly what we've read in books, um, what we've seen on TV, what we've seen in movies, uh, basically what the world around us is teaching us, especially more recently maybe what we read on the Internet. The belief system that we have comes from somewhere, and it's just a question of where it comes from. And that amalgamation of God's truth being slotted and fit into worldly beliefs and mixed into something more palatable is a recipe for avoiding persecution and making our lives more comfortable. And what happens, happens next in Acts, as the people do this, they sort of take the gospel that's being preached to them, uh, is, is actually really interesting uh, to see the sort of reactions that happen next. Some Jews from a town that Paul and Barnabas had already visited uh, follow them to Lystra, 
come over. And from what the text says, it sounds like they must have essentially further clarified to the Lystrans that Paul and Barnabas are not talking about their Greek religion. They're talking about something that's mutually exclusive with what the Lystrans believe. And it, it can't be mixed with their beliefs. And the reason I say it sounds like that's what happened was because of what the crowd did next. The crowd's like 180 from where they were before. So let's, let's read it, Acts 14, verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. So we don't really get details on what won the crowd over means, but the crowd obviously went from wanting to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, from worshiping them, calling them gods, to deciding, actually, we need to kill these guys uh, because of what they're saying. If Paul had said, no, you're right, I'm Hermes and Barnabas is Zeus, which is always funny to me that Paul wasn't Zeus in this instance. He wasn't like the one in charge. He was, he was Hermes. But if Paul had said, no, you're right, we are, we're Greek gods, we're the gods, come down to earth, then the people who were trying to sacrifice to them probably would have taken them to the temple and put them on the throne. Or maybe Paul didn't even need to be that sort of hard about it. He could have just backed down a little and said, okay, well, we're not Greek gods, but maybe there is some nuance to what we're saying uh, as it relates to your existing beliefs. Maybe there is a way to sort of make this work. And then not only could he possibly have been saved from being stoned to death, the people probably would have continued with some level of worship, uh, offering sacrifices to them, and maybe even accepted parts of what Paul and Barnabas were saying. Maybe not that Jesus is Lord and that there is one true God, but maybe some other parts, maybe some of the more moral parts about how to live their lives slightly, slightly differently. Certainly, Paul and Barnabas backing down and getting people to accept maybe one or two things here or there would have been a lot easier than being clear about the gospel and then being stoned and dragged outside the city and left for dead. But watering down the truth to an audience that desperately wants to reject it uh, is not what Paul was called to, uh, and it's not what Jesus calls us to do either. Jesus says himself in Matthew 10, verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son and daughter or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword is for me personally, at least, an incredibly difficult thing to hear Jesus saying. Um, it's almost in stark contrast to maybe what we would hear, especially in the world, about what Jesus teaches. But that is the truth that is playing out in Paul's life in these moments that we're reading about. Paul was bringing a disturbing and divisive truth. And the people who heard it their first reaction was to try and make it more acceptable. But ultimately, the full truth was not acceptable to them. And so they decided they needed to murder Paul because of what he was saying. And this is just one of many ways that people reacted to Paul preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
In this instance, a mob tried to silence him by killing him. But in other cases, they used laws to try and silence Paul. He was on many occasions arrested, thrown in jail, and brought before government officials to testify about his crimes. And it's reported in some late first century texts that Paul ultimately was martyred. He died for his beliefs, uh, presumably by the Roman government or maybe by some sort of form of the Jewish uh, leaders at the time. Uh, and while that's extra biblical, uh, recorded outside of the Bible, it certainly seems possible, probably even likely, given everything we're reading now and, and everything else that uh, Paul describes happening to him in his life. So there were a lot of different responses to what Paul was preaching. Uh, we talked about five of them so far. People warped what Paul was saying uh, to try to make it fit with what they believed, the way they lived their lives. People were worshiping them. Uh, Paul was physically assaulted as people tried to kill him, probably even eventually killed. Uh, he was silenced uh, by mobs who just wanted him to leave town. Uh, certainly happened many times. And he was silenced by the law um, as he was arrested for what he was saying. And a sixth thing uh, to add to this list is while all of this is happening, Paul was abandoned uh, in ways that are probably hard for us, us to imagine uh, in our modern-day context. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he's writing from prison, and he's telling Timothy about a trial that he was at. Um, he doesn't say what, exactly what type of Roman or, or uh, Jewish trial it was, but he says this uh, about how the trial went in 2 Timothy 4.16. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. So imagine you are arrested this afternoon uh, because you're in 132nd Square Park and you're telling someone about Jesus, uh, testifying to what's happened in your life and who Jesus is, um, and there's something that you say uh, that ends up getting you arrested, the way you said it, um, or maybe the uh, just the way you expressed yourself, and you get arrested, and you're taken to jail uh, tonight, uh, and you're booked into the jail, uh, and you're scheduled to appear at the court tomorrow morning, and tomorrow morning you wake up, and, and all of your friends know about it, your family know, knew about it, you were able to make your phone calls uh, and let people know, and so you go to trial tomorrow morning, and you're in you know, your leg shackles and your handcuffs, um, and you look around when you get to the trial tomorrow morning, and there is no one in the courtroom that you know. Your family isn't there. Your friends aren't there. No one from the church is there. You are completely alone. You don't know a single face in the crowd as you are being put on trial for testifying about Jesus. That's what Paul was describing there. And that's a type of persecution that Christians uh, may have to endure, that, that type of persecution, a feeling of aloneness where you are forced to rely on God, on Jesus Christ alone. And it's generally believed at this time that this was happening to Paul was around the time that Christians were being, beginning to be seriously persecuted uh, and at this time in history, arrested and killed. And it's, so it's very possible that no one showed up to Paul's trial because they were scared of being arrested and executed, uh, which certainly isn't something that we're thinking about today. But it's easy to imagine that type of fear of not wanting to very publicly sort of out yourself uh, for believing things that the culture or the government uh, at that time especially uh, would have you arrested for. And so I think there's two questions that we need to ask ourselves this morning 
Um, the first one is how much of the type of things that were happening to Paul, persecution, how much of that is abnormal for a Christian versus how much of that is expected for a Christian? And then the second question is, how was Paul able to endure all of that? And by extension, how are we uh, going to be able to endure persecution? So to the first question of how much of this hardship and trial should a Christian be expected to experience, let's go look at John chapter 15, verse 18. And Jesus says here, we'll read through verse 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So Jesus says here that if they persecuted him, they will also persecute us. And there have of course, been various times throughout history where that literally meant life and death for Christians. And there's places around the world right now where that means life and death for Christians. But here in the United States, even 50 years ago, the idea of being persecuted for being a Christian uh, is an idea that seems very foreign. Um, it's not something that is really a, has been a concern. But that is changing. Uh, many of us are one question away at our jobs from being fired. And I've mentioned this story, uh, especially in this area of the country that we live in. Um, and I've mentioned this story to some people before, so sorry if, uh, if you've heard it before. Um, but I think it's a good example of, of kind of what we mean when we say that uh, we're one question away from being fired. Uh, years ago, I was talking to a non-Christian friend of mine who's very senior in the tech industry, um, friends with a lot of CTOs and board members, uh, and I work in the tech industry. Um, and so he has a pretty good, just because of his relationships and how long he's been in the industry and how senior he is, he has a pretty good sort of handle on the tech industry in general, especially in this part of the country. And I mentioned to him, we were friends, he's not a Christian at all, or even close, but we're, we're friends. Uh, and I mentioned to him that I was worried about being pushed out of the industry uh, because I was a Christian. And he said to me, when I told him this, oh yeah, right, you Christians like to fantasize about being persecuted when Christianity is by far the most, of course, the most popular religion in the United States. Uh, and this, all this idea about persecution is just something that you Christians like to think about. You're the most popular religion in, in, in the United States. People love Christianity. And I said to him, so if I told you that I believed X, Y, and Z, and I listed off some things uh, that the Bible teaches uh, and has taught since it was written that Christians believe. I said, if I told you, uh, you know, right now that I believe these things, and if everyone in the industry specifically knew that I believe these things, you don't think that would be a problem? And he thought about it for a second and thought about these things that I told him that Christians believe that he'd never heard me say before. I'm sure he had heard it before on TV or something, but he'd never heard me say it before. And he thought about it for a second, and he said, yeah, yeah, that, that would probably be a problem um, if, if certain leaders uh, in the tech industry knew um, that would probably be a problem for you, probably more than a problem. And this was years ago that this conversation happened. So imagine that now. 
To that point, Jesus says in Luke 21, verse 12, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So Jesus makes it pretty clear that we should expect persecution. But there are a few of Jesus' words here from Luke that seem almost contradictory. Some of you they will put to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. Whether you're talking about losing your job, or losing friendships, uh, losing relationships, or losing your life, it's those two lines that reveal to us how we are able to endure persecution. There is life in Jesus found beyond and outside of the mortal life that we now live. So we asked two questions, the first of which was how should we expect persecution? The answer is yes, Jesus tells us it's yes, but the second question was how was Paul able to endure all the persecution that he went through? And it's those words from Jesus that we will be hated and some of us may be put to death, but not a hair on our head will perish. It's those words that reveal how we can endure persecution. And like we talked about earlier, Paul's life had been devoted to the destruction of Christianity, both systematically and kinetically. And Paul, one day, Jesus revealed the truth to Paul. Paul's eyes were opened to the reality of the fact that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. And it is that truth that empowered Paul to go from murderer to martyr. And it's that truth that empowers all Christians, including us, to endure any hardship and any trial. Paul was able to be beaten and stoned and arrested and everything else because he knew that Jesus Christ is the one, the only one, who has power over all things, including death itself. Paul knew that death is not the final note in the theme of life, the song of life, Death is actually the very means by which a Christian gains true life. To endure suffering and persecution and even death is really the path of true everlasting life. And for Paul, that was the only path that was worth walking. And this truth is what has sustained not just Paul, but all Christians throughout history as we've endured persecution and trial and hardship, even to this day. Even to modern history, uh, there's a Christian man named Charles Coulson, uh, born in 1931. Uh, some of you may have heard his name before. Uh, and he actually didn't even become a Christian until he was in his mid-40s. And he worked for Richard Nixon during Nixon's presidency. And Charles Coulson was actually the first of Nixon's staff to be arrested uh, and sent to jail for his participation in Watergate. I think they called him Nixon's hatchet man. Uh, you should look him up. It's really interesting to read about. And all that stuff happened before he became a Christian. And then later, after all of Watergate unraveled and everyone learned everything that had happened and he was sent to prison, he accepted Christ. And later in his life, he was reflecting on Watergate 
and he said this about Christianity. Charles Colson said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and thrown in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The truth that Charles Colson knew and is talking about here and that Paul knew and that the apostles knew is the same truth that we know. And so everything that Paul went through, he was able to do it because of Jesus Christ. And you and I are equipped to give our lives for the sake of Christ, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And he showed us on the cross that who he is, is Lord over death. People can take away our jobs or our lives, but they cannot take away the life that Christ Jesus has granted us. It is impossible for them to take away this gift. And Paul said later about his time at Lystra that the Lord rescued him from persecution. Talking about when he was stoned and left for dead. The Lord rescued him from persecution. A strange thing to say, considering what happened. But it's true. And for Christians, we will always be rescued. Jesus Christ secured our rescue when he died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And in 2 Timothy, which was written 20 or 30 years after Paul was stoned in Lystra, much later in his life, uh, Paul writes to Timothy that it is clear that Paul's time on this earth is coming to an end. Paul says to Timothy, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul writes this, that he will be rescued knowing that he is going to die soon. He describes that this moments in his life as being poured out like a drink offering. He knows that his time is very quickly approaching and he will die. And yet he says the Lord will rescue him. In the midst of trial and persecution, this should be what rests on our minds, that we know, we know that the Lord will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. And because of that, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this truth, Father, that you have revealed to us, Lord, that you are God above death, above trial, above hardship, above all things, Lord. And the one thing that we did to separate ourselves from you, our sin, you have defeated it on the cross. And we accept this, Lord. We accept Jesus Christ, Father, as the sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, for defeating everything that stands between us and you, Father, and bringing us together, Lord. Please help us to meditate on these truths, to think on these truths, Father, uh, as we go through trials and difficulties, Father, um, experiences in our lives, Father, that whether persecution or just hardship, help us to remember and to thank you for the fact that you are God above it all. Not even death can defeat you, Father. You are God above all things, Father.
It is by your hand that all things were created and are sustained, Father. There is nothing that you are not in control of. Thank you, Father. And thank you that we are your children, Lord. Be with us now as we continue to worship, Lord. And keep our minds always focused on worshiping you. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.